BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Megan's Spotify podcast makes a splash. Meanwhile, she tells the cut that she's still biting her tongue on royal life. And William and Kate add a fourth home to their slate of properties. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a royal watcher based in the U.S. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. And hello, Joe Rogan, who has now been bumped from the top spot at Spotify. Our first story today is the sensational debut of Archetypes, Megan's first weekly podcast show. Yes, and it has been a roaring success in many ways. Although, Kristen, I have to say, I still haven't got the email inviting us to a cross promo. I can't think what's happened to it. I guess maybe it went into my junk. Uh, maybe or I don't I don't know I don't know what happened maybe they don't have our current phone numbers yeah I'm also a little perplexed by this yeah I'll tell you I'll get in touch (laughs) it's probably an oversight but yes no it has been (laughs) it has been a roaring sex so far Um, we are now two episodes in and there have been bombshells Oh, yes, there have been. That's right. Uh, The first episode featured guest Serena Williams and a deep dive into the word ambition and what it means to both of them. But of course, the things that stood out most to us were not, uh, you know, vocabulary words, but the previously unreported fire in a home in South Africa where the family was staying. At one point, Archie's nursery actually was on fire and Archie, he narrowly escaped. He could have been in that nursery when that fire happened. It was just out of good fortune he wasn't in there at the time. That was back in September 2019. Yes, so this was the first day of their royal tour of South Africa. It's the same one people may remember. They uh, met Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and there's that like very, very used photograph of Meghan and Harry holding Archie while Archie meets the Archbishop. Um, but this was slightly earlier in the tour. So they arrived, they had their first job, it went well, and then they got a call saying that this fire had happened back at the residence. Um, so they went back, and um, the nanny, uh, who had fortuitously happened to take Archie with her when she went to get him a snack, um, was in tears. It was only through that piece of good fortune that Archie wasn't in the room at the time that a heater um, started smoking and caught fire. Yeah. And uh, we didn't know about this. They they didn't talk about it back then. Um, they supposedly weren't supposed to talk about it back then. They don't want to sound like, oh, we're we're saying something negative about this host country that we're in. And I don't think in the podcast that Megan painted a negative picture, by the way, of the nanny of the home of South Africa. She just said it was an accident and it was really terrifying. For her, the biggest issue was that she did not want to have to do a royal engagement immediately after all this was happening. For her, that was the the toughest part of all this. Not that there was an issue with the host country. It really was just, oh, why do I have to go out here and put a smile on my face now and do my royal walk and talk when my baby could have just died? 
So this feels like it's it's back to the same way that the palace was characterised during the Oprah Winfrey interview, where they're um, presented very much as being focused on uh, kind of protocol, not letting other people down, and not on the way things felt for Meghan and Harry. So <clears throat> Meghan uh, talks about how optics was put before feelings. Um, she didn't actually explicitly use the word palace, but the implication seems to be pretty clear that there was an expectation on them as a couple to continue working. Um, Meghan felt that she would just she wanted to spend time obviously with Archie and you know reconnect after this uh, this scary near miss um, they went on to do a job in a place called District 6 which is a community that uh, where residents were forcibly evicted by the apartheid regime back in the 1960s and 70s um, and I mean obviously that is an important cause and I'm sure one that would be close to Megan's heart as well so I'm sure it was it would have been a difficult decision either way because she wouldn't have wanted to miss that um, but she did also make the point that perhaps if they had just told people what happened then probably the host uh, their hosts at the next engagement would have understood. Yeah let's talk about some other things that are in that first episode with Serena shall we? One thing that stood out to me was that Serena <laughs> that Serena Williams essentially uh, leaned on Harry as kind of an advisor when she was considering retirement. And who knows more about retirement from a big, splashy job than Harry? So I love that it. she turned to him for advice. <laughs> Very much his field of expertise. Yeah, what will it be like yes. when I suddenly completely pull the plug on anything and everything that's given my life structure for years and years and years? Because like you've got to think Serena must have been living her whole life by the tennis schedule. Like, you know, that's a whole kind of structure to the year that's being removed, you know, when the big Grand Slam tournaments are and so yeah i mean it's over 25 years of her life has been this over 25 years of her life like that is a long time Uh, that's a long time that's more than half her life i think isn't it yes it is um, yeah and i'm reminded in a way of that speech that harry gave to the center barley dinner shortly after they announced that they were quitting royal duty so they hadn't done their final jobs yet it was still january and he went and spoke at this charity dinner for his um, for his charity that he's he sets up, Santa Barley. Um, and he said that he was turning his back on everything he'd ever known. Um, and so for him, I guess this was like the royal family is what created structure for him dating back to virtually birth, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a good person to turn to if you're Serena Williams <laughs> and stepping back. <laughs> she, I don't think she's going for half in, half out, though. So the negotiations might be more straightforward. Yes, 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 yes. A few other things that stood out to me in the interview, I mean, on the glamour front, Serena and Megan both kind of uh, sound chummy with Anna Winter of Vogue fame. They simply refer to her as Anna, where I'm like, look at these two. These two are so famous. They're so glamorous. <laughs> of course, they just call her Anna, right? <laughs> it's also quite novel, somebody referring to Anna without just kind of like a note of terror in their voice. Yes, was- <laughs> I noticed that too. I'm like, neither of them sound like they're like scared of her, but yeah, exactly. I thought everybody was scared of her. <laughs> Maybe like that's the benchmark of how high you have to go before you don't have to be scared of Anna Winter anymore. <laughs> so it's fine. You just have to either be the greatest tennis player who ever lived or marry into the royal family. Just one of the two. Just one of those two things. Easy. We can all do that. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, you know, they've both now got a big connection to the magazine. Obviously, Megan guest edited the September 2019 edition, which was her famous Forces for Change cover where she brought mm-hmm. all the, all of these women together and put them on the front page. And Serena, of course, um, announced her uh, retirement in the pages of Vogue. Yes. 
um, some other notable moments. Let's talk about Serena Williams. I mean, we know she's the greatest tennis player in the world, but you know when she won the French Open back in 2018? We find out in this interview she did that despite only 30 minutes of sleep because the night before the match, her daughter Olympia broke her wrist. And so she was up all night going to the ER, tending to her daughter, and then had to go out there. And on 30 minutes of sleep, this is how good Serena is. She can be up all night worrying and still kill it on the court. I mean, I've been in A&E in the middle of the night with my son before. Luckily, not for anything as serious as a broken wrist. Although some kind of serious stuff. There was once he had a he had a seizure and we had to take him to hospital. Uh, it, like, it is hell. Like, it is a living hell hell being in A&E overnight um, and that much, that little sleep I honestly just cannot conceive of doing something so important um, in you couldn't like, win an international tennis match after that Jack what I could, I what's could wrong with you make a cup of coffee you know like I don't know if you know like with there's a level of tiredness you can get to where coffee makes it worse like it's you just flip like the whole world turns upside down and drinking coffee is like the worst thing you could possibly do it just makes you tired and like that is the level of that we're talking here it is that apart from anything else now you've got to remember hospitals are just horrific places any time of day and then you're there in the middle of the night there's like everybody around you is like basically visibly like a lot there's a lot of people pediatric any as well there's a lot of kids there who are visibly really ill which is quite a disconcerting experience like people like throw up in the waiting room and stuff like that so like I, yeah, I mean, honestly, Serena, like, as if it wasn't impressive enough. Well done. Seriously. Yeah, very impressive. Um, we got to talk about some clapbacks, though, that they gave in this ah, uh, yes. conversation. I, lo- I have to say, I absolutely love, like, royal Krem- Kremlinology. I love, like, that the art of piecing together the hidden meaning <laughs> behind things that get said publicly. It's one of my favorite things. And, yeah, so Tom Bauer, we spoke about him before on the podcast, right? unauthorized biographer or mudslinger, whatever you want to call him. Yeah. I think we, which find a general was what we uh, alluded yes. to last time, I think. <laughs> yes. So um, Tom Bauer said a whole load of stuff about Megan, but one of the things he said was that um, she wasn't really friends with Serena. That at the time of the wedding in 2018, they were just acquaintances. Um, so we knew, because there were photos of it, that Megan and Serena had in fact met in 2014. And what we now have is Serena herself in conversation with Megan, going on the record and talking about what great friends they are. And Megan had an opportunity to point out that they became friends really quickly after the photos from 2014. So this is like, he again, you know, Megan did not directly name Bauer, but it is a very clear rebuttal of what was said in the biography. Yeah. And remember also in the biography, Bauer pretty much dismissed her whole dishwashing liquid Procter and Gamble story, which was covered on Nick News when she was a child. She wrote to Procter and Gamble and she said, you know, your dishwashing liquid ads say that women around the world are fighting greasy pots and pans, when in fact, it shouldn't be women, it should be people. All humans who wash dishes are affected by greasy pots and pans. And she doubles down on that story with Serena, even though Tom Bauer pretends it never happened. Yeah, so they have she re- they have the clip from Nick News where she's reading out the letter. Um, and she reads, she basically asked them explicitly to change it from women to people. And then they play over the top the new commercial which changed it from women to people so this feels again like it's it's a very clear 
here's the archive footage, so you can't dispute my account. It's there for everybody to hear. And of course, one really interesting thing about her choosing this episode to clap back at Tom Bauer is that Tom Bauer has called her ambitious, and that, of course, was the theme of the whole episode. He's called her ambitious another time, including in the infamous interview in which he also referred to her as a brazen hussy, giving rise to members of the Sussex squad changing their social media profile names. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't know when exactly they recorded the whole thing. I think some of it was um, before Serena announced her retirement. But, you know, there's a few there's a few points in this that do seem to directly reference Bauer. And there's absolutely none in the Mariah Carey interview that appear to have any connection to Bauer. So um, really interesting to see. Yeah. Um, I also have to point out, I got a laugh out of it. It was kind of a clap back at the Daily Mail and their headlines that Megan was almost straight out of Compton. And she and Serena talk about it. Serena is from Compton. She's not ashamed. And she brings up other famous people who were brought up in Compton, like Kevin Costner, for example. And they laugh about it. They're like, Megan's like, it's not like there's anything wrong with Compton. I'm just not from there. And it's quite funny because obviously the male's headline was Harry's girl is almost straight out of Compton and Megan said, oh, what, are you talking about Serena? <laughs> As in like, <laughs> Harry's girl. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, I mean, the, one of the things that Megan's legal team actually picked up on in her lawsuit against the Mail on Sunday was yeah, exactly the um, the way that they described the community in, in Compton is kind of like gang scarred um, and they're kind of saying, will Prince Harry come round for tea as though it would be inappropriate for a member of the royal family to go to a community like Compton. Because obviously, if you're from Compton, I mean, I think you're well within your rights to take uh, quite a lot of offence at that characterisation. It was a moment when Straight Out of Compton, the film, was in the public in the public eye at the time. So probably, like, a part of their motivation was just shoehorn that extra SEO phrase in there that might have got some extra traffic. But obviously, nothing made them call it gangsguard and said all those other say all those other offensive things about you know, like a proud community. Yeah, they they were, you know, two steps removed from essentially saying Megan is a gang member in that, you know, <laughs> it, it was pretty thinly veiled what they were saying about Megan in that. We should also talk about the second episode of the show, by the way, which just yes. came out like within hours of us taping this episode, the episode with Megan interviewing the great Mariah Carey and in that episode, the focus is on the word diva. Reminder, episode one was focusing on the word ambition. Episode two, diva. What does diva mean to both of them? And Mariah Carey, she proudly owns the word. She sees herself as someone who has evolved from other to icon. And part of being an icon is being a diva. She has no apologies about it. She talks frankly, and so does Megan, about what it's like to be otherized your whole life where you're neither black nor white or you're both black and white and there's not really quite a place to fit in and then forging your own path and being glamorous and uh, chasing your dreams and demanding what you want and what you deserve in life and she says if that makes me a diva I'm not apologizing for that that's totally fine I'm a diva but there was some awkwardness in this episode <laughs> because at a certain point she says to Megan, and you're a diva too. And <laughs> Megan is offended when that happens, even though Mariah Carey just says moments earlier like that she likes the word diva, but when she calls Megan a diva, Megan doesn't like it. 
Yes, exactly. And she, Megan actually <laughs> clearly goes away and thinks about this and processes it for a while. She kind of smooths it over quite quickly in the episode, in that moment of the episode itself. But then Megan ends her um, episodes of Archetypes with this kind of like, you know, Jerry's final thoughts. She kind of ends it with Megan's final thoughts. And she does this mm-hmm. kind of like summing up of what we've learned. And she obviously had this moment of realization that she even doing, even like having come up with the idea to do this episode, having come up with the theme of Divas, having done all of that and had all of those conversations she had still had that internalized negative connotation with the words where she had thought that mariah was saying basically you know that she was uh whatever association you might have with the word diva whether it's you know being overly dramatic or demanding or whatever um so she had even in the act of doing a show to try to remove that stigma had not actually been able to rid herself of it internally which is quite interesting yeah. And I like that that stayed in the episode. As somebody who has been podcasting for almost 15 years, I understand the instinct to want to, let's just put that on the cutting room floor. Let's yes. not leave that awkward <laughs> moment in there. And I think it's really brave to leave that stuff in. And it makes the show so much more interesting. It makes Megan so much more human that she has to grapple with some of the things that maybe she's trying to come across more like an expert and maybe she's not an expert and it's okay and she just owns up to it and i commend her for leaving that in the show not all yeah. hosts would want to leave it in the show <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean what do you go to megan's podcast for you you go to megan's podcast to be able to connect with megan on a level that you couldn't through other means and so that is providing an aspect of like what in fiction writing you'd call interiority it it, it provides like an access to her inner world that usually we don't get you know it's fine to you've got Megan doing interviews she's talking about stuff you get a sense of her external world but that kind of admission that she had gone through this like internal emotional turmoil briefly uh, it gives us access to her internal world in a way that you very rarely get with any celebrity really but is almost unheard of completely for members of the royal family like you just never get that kind of that kind of access it's it's unthinkable No, not at all. Now, another part of her interview with Mariah that I thought was really interesting is that like Mariah, she's always seen herself as both black and white. But once she married into the royal family, she kind of felt that she was being pigeonholed into just one of those identities. Yes, exactly. So she basically said she, in fact, there's interviews before she joined the royal family where she talked about herself as biracial. And she also tells that famous story where she was in school and she didn't know what box to tick, whether to tick white or black. There was no box for mixed race. But what's interesting is she says that after her relationship started with Prince Harry, that's when she understood what it felt like to be viewed as a black woman. Uh, So obviously she has talked extensively about um, racism in the media and we'll get onto some more of that in due course. Um, but really here we're we're talking about a particular type of racism which people sometimes refer to as colorism where there is a mm-hmm. racism within people's perceptions of different people of color so you know if you're light-skinned then you might not experience as bad racism or, or you might experience less racism than if you're if you're treated as a black woman uh, megan said that despite being mixed race she got the f- kind of full force of the worst types of racism in a way that she hadn't in previous aspects of her 
life. And Megan has not in this, not in this podcast, but has previously said she's, you know, she saw her mum being called the N words um, yeah. in the past. So you know, she knows what she means when she says these things. Um, it, which is obviously it's really interesting from the point of view of thinking about and talking about racism. Like obviously, colorism is a is a um, is a big conversation at the moment, but it's also really interesting in terms of her and her relationships with the royal family as well. So obviously everything she says about that is in the context of her whole royal life. Her and Harry are trying to basically convince other members of the royal family to speak out on the, their relations with the media um, and all of this stuff. So it, it creates a kind of prism of understanding of what Meghan and Harry were going through during that whole time. Yeah, absolutely. And I just love that this conversation was happening with Mariah Carey and that Mariah Carey and Megan were going back and forth saying, oh, I know that. I know how that feels. I know what that's like. Megan reveals that she was an absolute like Mariah Carey stan when she was a teenager. Yes. Loved Mariah Carey. <laughs> well, first of all, who wasn't? Who isn't, I should say. Um, as soon as we uh, stop this episode, I am going to listen to All I Want for Christmas is You for, you know, the hundredth time today. I, get, I love get Mariah. The back I love Mariah. Out. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, her connection with Mariah also is because she sees some of herself in Mariah. And I just thought it was a fantastic conversation. All right, we are going to take a quick break now. But before we do, a reminder to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Give us those five stars. We think you're all stars, and we'll take your stars away from you. <laughs> when we're back, more Megan. She gives an exclusive interview to The Cut and we talk all about it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hi everyone, and we're back now, just as the royal world braced for episode 2 of Archetypes, a new in-depth interview with Megan dropped in the cut on what in Britain was an overcast bank holiday Monday. 
Yes. In addition to posing for multiple photos in the cut, Megan gave the magazine unprecedented access, bringing interviewer Allison P. Davis into their home and even on a school run to pick up Archie. Megan described how she upset the royal hierarchy just by existing and gave a tantalizing clue that there may be more royal bombshells to come with the revelation that she never signed an NDA. And she literally said she can say anything. And um, so clearly, you know, she means it. She says she's still healing, which is part of the reason why she hasn't said everything that she's got to say. Um, But obviously this, I'm sure, will have caused a degree of fear to spread through the corridors of of all three palaces, I would imagine, because they were, you know, I mean, even episode one of the podcast that we've just been discussing had that story about Archie and the fire and how the palace handled that. So clearly there are still many things that they have haven't spoken about i mean there are actually like this is one thing that i've been thinking for quite a while now is they have said absolutely nothing about the breakup of the shared household at kensington palace um so they used to be based at the same uh, within the same royal household as william and kate and then at some point megan and harry left and went their separate ways and they literally just didn't discuss this in oprah so that is like a whole chapter of their royal journey that is completely untouched so clearly there are some pretty pretty huge things that they could still broach and we've got prince harry's memoir coming out um, we think mm-hmm. by the end of the year so yeah i mean I mean, you know, it's, it's a very clear hint that she's thinking about saying some more um, and at present has made a, she says, has made a conscious decision not to, which feels like a kind of coded message to the palace, like maybe you should be grateful, guys. <laughs> yes, but, you know, she does want to tell her story her own way, um, not just on her podcast, but she does drop the hint that she's planning on you know, creating another Instagram account, putting her story out there that way, releasing photos on her timeline, not the way she used to have to do when she was with the firm. She had to give photos to the Royal Rota before she would ever put it on any of her own social feeds. So one thing she says in the interview is, why would I want to give photos to people calling my child the N-word before sharing them with my friends and family, my loved ones? Why would I want to, you know, give it to this hungry pack of wolves, the the readers of a lot of the Royal Rota rags? Yes, they are rags. A lot of the readers in the comment section did throw around very, very racist language when talking about Megan and Archie. And yeah, and I think that in in fairness, there's a slight point that worth, that's worth clarifying there, which is that she says the same people who called her children the n-word i think my understanding is that it is that is focused on those kind of yeah people in the comment section or trolls on social media but that she's drawing a kind of continuum between those people and you know maybe like journalists who interact with social media trolls in an Mm -hmm. uncritical way and then the publications those journalists work for so um i don't think that there's any suggestion that any actual royal rotor journalist has literally in print or in private actually called her children the n-word um but yeah obviously like you say you know it's the people in the comment section on the mail or or on twitter or wherever else the the readers they're courting let's be real the royal rota is courting these kinds of readers who say stuff like this so i think it's a valid concern that maybe she wants to have more ownership of her story and her family photos and I think it was it was clear even at the time that Meghan and Harry wanted a greater degree of control over their profile. Obviously, they set up Sussex Royal, and um, that did allow them some of that kind of control over the release of photographs and stuff like that. And now we have William and Kate doing similar things. I mean, they now 
release statements through Twitter, which I, I actually remember there being like quite heated discussions about the way stuff was being shared via social media before going to the road. So back, way back in kind of 2017, 2018. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a live issue at the time and there was tension between the palace and the media over it. Um, obviously now, I mean, I guess there's, you know, the road journalists can't, you know, they've, been outmaneuvered to an extent and yeah William will when he wants to congratulate the England women's football team for example will put it straight onto Twitter and actually like some yeah some reasonably big statements and especially when you know I think when he was calling out football racism I seem to remember that was on that was kind of broke on the on uh, Twitter yeah Duke and Duchess of Cambridge yeah Twitter account so yeah it wind the clock back to 2018 and that would probably cause a bit of a stir and a bit of an argument between the palace and the media but now that kind of you know the tectonic plates have just simply moved and this is a reality that's unmovable now yeah maybe we have Megan to thank for that <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting though to, to, to that she does suggest i mean and actually the journalist did also say that she later kind of took it back a little bit but yeah if she does get an instagram account going again then probably one thing we'll get is just a lot more photographs of them because right now photographs are kind of few and far between yeah they are another revelation in the piece megan does not deny that there was a great deal of racism hurled at her um especially you know in the tabloids but she feels that you know a lot of the pushback she got wasn't necessarily in her words because she was a black american but simply because she was an American. And I thought that was interesting because it still sucks and xenophobia <laughs> is not okay. It's terrible. <laughs> but xenophobia, you know, it is not a hundred percent the same thing as racism. It's it's it is slightly different. Yeah, I mean there's a there's a real like indirectness, I think, to the way that um the palace, but also like the wider aristocracy functions. And mm-hmm. um it's quite old school now and probably younger generations of the aristocracy are less like this. But yeah, there are all these kind of like hidden social norms. Um and you know, one is like me and my wife were actually talking about it a little while ago. You know, it and it is probably outdated now. And in all honesty, if you were at a young person, like a young aristocratic person's house, it would probably be less of a big deal but yeah there were things that you know if you are sitting around for dinner at the dinner table you don't like serve yourself food you Mm -hmm. uh you offer somebody else food and then when they turn it down you serve yourself so you don't just like pick up the potatoes and start dishing yourself out some potatoes you turn to the person you're right and say would you like some potatoes Mm -hmm. there's all these kind of like hidden social rules that um you know you you even know or you don't and that creates like kind of social capital barrier that stops outsiders from being accepted within this world. And it is actually something that, you know, um, the Middletons experienced as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there were aristocratic parties, people tittering about the fact that Kate's uh, mum used to be an air steward. And there was some story in the Daily Mail about how uh, Carol Middleton had humiliated herself by saying something like, pleased to meet you instead of how do you do? Like there is it's just these little things. <laughs> just that idiotic, just, <laughs> dumb rules. It, idiotic, but it's, it just shows that you're not one of them. You know, it shows that you're not from that world. It shows that you're an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think with, you know, obviously Americans are much more direct, right? Like, don't let me characterize you. I'm an English person. You're American. But uh, so, you know, stop me if you think I'm wrong. But no. like, uh, I, I remember, right. 
Yeah, like I remember having um, so like I've got a really good American friend who actually hopefully I'm seeing this uh, this Christmas because he's coming over to Britain. But I haven't seen him in years and years. Um, but him and his friend came round to my house, to my parents' house. Um, it was around about the time when I was at uni, and he was just about to go back to America, and we all had dinner. And my parents absolutely loved it. But like, yeah, they were just happily serving. Like this guy was like happily serving himself, like slicing off uh, sli- cuts of beef from the roast beef, and which like you English people just don't kind of do that sort of thing but my parents absolutely loved it like they don't like that whole kind of staffy aristocratic thing and um, also we don't have the aristocratic wealth by the way <laughs> <laughs> but like they just felt that he felt at home and that was what mattered to them yes um, yes and yeah. i take that as a great compliment when people feel at home in my home also you know in america a lot of us don't want to have somebody serve us, it makes us feel right. weird. And if right, somebody right. does service, we thank them profusely. And the aristocracy, they don't thank their staff when their tea is refilled. They just ignore them entirely. <laughs> <laughs> they never acknowledge the staff at all. And in the US, it's very much in keeping with our culture. We thank people who help us. And we don't want to come across as if we are, you know, hoity-toity. We don't want to put yeah, on right. airs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. And then also, one thing I thought as well is that, um, obviously, we've talked a lot about Jason, Jason Canal, for the mm-hmm. former Kensington Palace press secretary, who's now since moved on, um, but still has a connection to, to William. Um, he hasn't really which... moved on. He's still there. Let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he was, he was American too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, yeah, I mean, the, some of the kind of tensions behind closed doors wound up being between these two Americans who, um, were both, I guess, one can only assume Jason must to a certain extent have experienced some of the same thing himself. Um, but probably actually like a lot of the kind of British palace aides would not have got into that argument, whichever side you take, whether you're on Megan's side or whether you're on Jason's side, whatever, like a lot of. British palace aides would probably have just swallowed that whole situation. I mean, you know, Prince Andrew's tirades at mem- staff members are notorious, but none of those staff members. But somebody to touched his teddy bear, it. Jack. Okay, somebody touched his teddy bears. <laughs> Although that's fine because he's not going to move his teddy bears himself, is he? So you've got to touch the teddy bears. But they touched them wrong. They put them back wrong. Um, so yeah, like, but think of all those staff who have been mistreated by Andrew. Like, none of them kicked up the stink that um, Jason kicked up. Yeah. So you have the situation where, yeah, I mean, you have two Americans who are in their own different ways, both trying to get something changed or something done. And it's causing like a massive inflammation for the for the royal household, which just isn't used to this kind of thing. Guys, we just put up with it and get on with things. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so we have to point out a couple of other things that are in this cut interview. There are a lot of descriptions of the way that Meghan and Harry live. I have to say, it sounds quite nice. Uh, their house <laughs> has multiple terraces, uh, you know, a chicken coop, a rose garden, a tennis court, tea house, a two-bedroom guest house, a pool and pool house. It sounds like a really nice place. Yeah, and they've got space, isn't it? 
Harry's talked about that before. He said, you know, he's kind of acknowledged how lucky they were during the pandemic to have so much space to just be able to basically open your front door and they, you know, swimming pool and, you know, big expensive grounds, um, which it's, yeah, it sounds phenomenal. And they, there were pictures that did the rounds at the point when they first moved in and it does look incredible. Um, it's a kind of, yeah, she says, she describes it as being Tuscan style, like a kind of big Tuscan villa. Um, and they've got their office chairs where they sit side by side doing home working and mm-hmm. harry uh, harry had a guest uh, walk on part in the interview and said that he they actually work really well home working together side by side in a way that his family he says do not which is quite an interesting little aside to yes. say in <laughs> I liked Kate, that. what's been going on <laughs> <laughs> i liked that um on the school run something i thought was great was that they um you know the, the interviewer gets a real glimpse of how does Archie act when he's picked up at school? How do the other right. parents act when they see Megan coming? And um, Archie, of course, like all little kids, he loves his mom. Of course, he runs to her, mommy, mommy, mama, mama, you know? Um, and, and it's great. There there are no airs, no acting proper. The only thing is they do try to instill manners in Archie, which isn't always easy to do with a toddler. <laughs> they constantly tell him manners make the man. And they say that they try to instill a sense of charity in the kids and giving back. At one point, uh, after the school run, they actually stop the car when they see somebody who is unhoused and give him a backpack full of food. There's also a little bit of really kind of like candid toddler life, which um, I thought was fantastic, which is Archie likes to roll the window down, but only when they go past a specific hedge, yes. which is just such a toddler thing to do. To just have this <laughs> Nobody really, knows like, why, but it's that hedge. Got to roll yeah, it down exactly. now. <laughs> so yeah it's re- there's a real like candid uh candid thing that comes across where you do get a genuine window into their day-to-day lives which is again like really pretty rare for a royal you know they don't let people in in that way very often and i think actually i was trying to think like i think she has been given more access to their kind of private family life than any other journalist the only one th- thing I was asking myself is obviously Oprah did get a tour of the chicken coop. Mm-hmm. So they, but I, I mean, Oprah's their friend really, isn't she? Like it, she's mm-hmm. not like a straightforward journalist. Like, as journalists go, like she has been given more access, I think, than any other journalist who they've ever worked with. Certainly than Harry's, than who Harry has ever worked with. I can't remember Harry ever doing anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, this shows a, a degree of trust as well, like quite a significant degree of trust placed in the cut and in the interviewer herself, Alison P. Davis. So they obviously thought that, um, yeah, that she was somebody who was going to give them a fair treatment. And there is like a slightly wry tone to certain parts of the oh, write-up. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I, I did actually, I actually thought it was a very enjoyable read and that she did a, a phenomenal job. Um, but yes, she clearly, you know, there's clearly a feeling on, on the writer's part that's like just a little tiny bit of wry humor here and there would help the interview go down yeah um i would say it's respectful but it's not a hundred percent doting um that's kind of the tone i got from it yes yes exactly and she yeah she identified probably quite rightly that you know a little bit of humor helps to offset like there are serious issues where harry and megan are are concerned but a little bit of humor does actually help provide a counterpoint to some of the seriousness too Yes, absolutely. 
we're going to take one more quick break. But before we do, a reminder to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston and Kristen is at Kristen Meinzer. Uh, we always have royal updates there as well as my latest stories for Newsweek. And when we're back, a look at William and Kate's newest home. Not new home, newest home. And the controversy around it. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis. Go green with solar panels or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hello, everyone. We are back with one last story. William and Kate, they are leaving London and moving to yet another home in Windsor called Adelaide Cottage. It will be just seven miles from the kids' new school, but the move has proven controversial during the cost of living crisis engulfing Britain. Inflation is forecast to top 20%. There is a looming recession which could last 18 months and energy bills could reach the dizzying height of £7,700 a year from April 2023. So I guess that's around $8,000 a year. Um, Meanwhile, ordinary Brits are going to be seriously struggling by the time winter hits. Yeah, very much so. William and Kate, however, they're not suffering. (laughs) They they have, we should point out, not just this new home, but they're going to keep their other homes. And they have several other homes. Anmar Hall on the Sandringham Estate. They also have Tom Nagar on the Balmoral Estate. And of course, we all know about their 20-room mansion at Kensington Palace. They call it an apartment, but I'm sorry. It's a multi-story mansion. Come on, let's be real. And reminder, Kensington Palace was just updated with 4.5 million pounds of public money less than 10 years ago. Yeah, so when they moved into apartment 1A, the palace put out the statement saying, you know, this is going to be their home for a very long time to come, for many, many years to come. And I guess, you know, it was about sort of roughly 10 years ago that the work started. So um, perhaps that is a long time. But needless to say, yeah, I mean, you know, they'll now have, well, three homes, really kind of three and a half. The Balmoral one isn't you know, it doesn't belong to them. It's it's where they stay anyway. And actually, Republic, the anti-monarchy campaign group, are making a case for saying that there's an adjoining house right next to the new place, Adelaide Cottage, um, which will no doubt be used by their staff. So mm-hmm. Republic are, try- are saying that it's four, actually, rather than three. I mean, one thing that I just on a purely practical note feel like I have to ask is, like, are they moving their stuff from Kensington Palace? Like, how much stuff are they moving? Are they kind of like pulling everything out of cupboards and putting it in a move and stay pile? Like, you know, are they like working out how many, is Kate working out how how many dresses she can get away with at Kensington Palace? Like, what's going on? You know, how much are they actually moving? 
Well, supposedly they're still going to be working out of 1A. Um, supposedly that's still going to be their work headquarters, right? Well, their office is so they have so one A is entirely residential, I think, and then they but they're keeping their office at Kensington Palace. So anytime that you know they're in London working, they'll have one A to go to pop into afterwards if they want to, or to stay like you know to stay overnight beforehand if they want to. So they'll yeah they'll have both, but their kind of professional operation is not going to move at present to Windsor Castle. Their professional operation is still going to be at Kensington Palace, and they will still be represented by Kensington Palace. So it is a kind of it's a, a it's a purely residential move but they're not giving up apartment 1a um <sighs> i guess you could kind of say that apartment 1a isn't going anywhere and charles is probably not minded to give it to anyone else because he wants to sim down the monarchy um but also I, you know i mean just to completely throw out a curveball like apartment 1a was where princess diana lived so if you opened that up to the public you could probably charge a significant amount of money for tours of the house where diana lived yeah especially Um, if you could like kind of redecorate it back to the you know back to what she had that that uh fabulous 80s dynasty look (laughs) yes yeah i mean we're getting it's i mean honestly it's going to be a bleak winter. It's going to be really, really bleak. I was just this morning joking to my wife that it's going to get to the stage where we're burning money to keep warm because it's going to be cheaper than putting the radiator on. Um, <laughs> and um, it's, yeah, it's going to, it could start to look quite bad for them. I mean, all they had to really do was move out of Anne Hall and Kensington Palace. And I think people would have understood and it would have been fine. But why keep Anne Hall when, you know, Sandringham House, which is, so Anne Hall is on the Sandringham estate. Sandringham mm-hmm. House, great big massive country house where all the rest of the royal family stay so what they have there is somewhere where during the the royal christmas um they don't have to stay in the big house with everybody else they stay in anne hall Um, oh no we don't want to stay in that mansion we want our own separate mansion (laughs) (laughs) so like it would have been really easy to give it up i mean they probably have lots of memories there that they don't want to turn their backs on but in terms of need you know, there isn't a need that I can see to keep Anne Mahal, especially because, you know, I mean, presumably, uh, like if you look at the whole royal estate, you know, Charles has numerous houses as well. Like there are kind of royal houses everywhere. Charles is Highgrove in mm-hmm. Gloucestershire. He has a place in Wales. Obviously, as you mentioned earlier, there are places up in Scotland and within the Balmoral estate. There are kind of royal residences everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, all the a lot of criticism has been made of Harry and Meghan for the cost of their one property in California. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if William and, and Kate are going to keep adding to their portfolio, then obviously you know what is the cumulative privilege of having like all these different places yeah i i do find it i was gonna say perplexing but it's downright irritating frankly how <laughs> megan and harry have been raked over the coals for having a house and meanwhile you know william and kate have all of these houses all of them and even though they have cute words like cottage and apartments they're bigger than most homes that people in london will ever dream of having in their entire lives I, I, I don't want to speak for you, Jack, but I'm assuming you're not living in like a 20-room house right now. I, I'm presuming No, I have not. a castle. I have a castle. Yeah. We, um, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm not living in a 20-room. 
<laughs> 20 room home. Um, and no, nor do I have a kind of, you know, moat or, uh, or anything else. But Nor um, the money for the yeah. heating bills for a 20 room house. I mean, just the but heating I was thinking, bills alone it's, it's funny a 20 you say this. <laughs> I was just literally saying that like, we need to get into this. Like, I, I want to look up and try and work out what's going to happen to them because this is going to start costing phenomenal amounts of money to heat royal palaces. Like it's going to think of, they're not energy efficient buildings. The no. rooms are humongous. The ceilings are really high. They're really old. They're listed. So you can't put double glaze. You can't just stick, you know, double glazing UPVC. In. No, they're um, not LEED certified. These are not up to environmental standards. These, yeah, these old so, houses. Yeah. So they've got to heat these things. Like they're, they're going to have to heat all these old buildings. And I don't know how much that's going to cost them. But with the soaring, soaring, soaring price of energy, it's. I, I wonder. We actually had like a financial update from the royal family in June. But the cost, the predicted surge in cost of energy is changing week by week. So I think it, there could be a bit of a. a kind of time bomb here for the royals as well i think by the time they get to their, to look at their finances again next june it could be that a quite substantial chunk has been taken out of the reserves to pay for it mm, wow well, i don't think adding one more house to the mix is going to make things better just going to make things worse mm, i do i have sympathy for them wanting to move out of london because it is a notorious goldfish bowl and obviously, you know, Harry and Meghan had the same experience and they moved out to uh, to Windsor as well and that's how they got Frogmore Cottage. Um, I think Princess Diana struggled with it too. I mean, you're just, as the minute you leave, you're right in you're in the middle of High Street, Kensington, which is obviously full of people who, apart from the house, are fan, you know many of them fans of the royal family. You've also, for what it's worth, you've got the Daily Mail offices just a stone's throw away, and there have actually been times in the past where Daily Mail journalists have seen Kate out and about, um, and so I can fully understand that they might just want a little bit of space and a little bit of privacy. And to get mm-hmm. out of London. But I think, yeah, like we said, the real like difference is the keeping of the other houses. You don't need all those houses. You just don't. And sure, you're getting away from the fishbowl, but now you actually live almost next door to Prince Andrew. And ugh, I don't want to live next oh, to Prince but, Andrew. <laughs> but closer to the Queen than Prince Andrew. So That's true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> they might have muscled him out a little bit. Yes. Um, and it also, actually, one interesting side point is uh, that it means that George, uh, Charlotte and Prince Louis are all starting a new school soon. They're yes. moving to Lambrook in Berkshire, which is quite interesting in terms of something Megan said, which was that uh, she, in her interview with The Cut, she said that she, uh, if she was still in Britain, she wouldn't be able to take Archie on the school run because there'd be 40 people trying to take photographs of her and it would turn into a press call, um, which obviously there may well be. I've not seen any kind of announcements yet, but there may well be a press call when Louis has his first day at school um, coming up in September. So there's an interesting little bit of positioning there in terms of Megan getting that narrative in there before the press call actually takes place yes well we'll keep an eye on that and the heating bills but for now (laughs) that's it for this episode of the Royal Report be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal until next time I'm Kristen Meinzer and I'm Jack Royston Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And a curtsy to you all.